listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. I didn't know this until Google told me, but most of us will spend a third of our lives at work. That comes out to about 90,000 hours for the average person in the U.S. I have no idea what they mean by average, but even if you give or take 20,000 hours, that's still a huge chunk of our lives spent with coworkers and supervisors and customers and clients. If we're lucky, we spend another third of our lives sleeping. And the final third? Well, that's up to you all. But for many of us, it's spent doing all the things that don't get done while we're sleeping or working. When someone in our lives gets sick or dies, grief doesn't know how to stick to that third of our time spent not working and sleeping. Grief likes to hang out with us most of the day and night, most days of the week. I'd even venture that grief makes itself known for all hours of all the days. So given that grief definitely comes to work with us, it makes sense that companies and organizations have established structures and systems to support their employees who are grieving. You know, things like generous bereavement leave, training for managers and supervisors on becoming grief-informed, and information for coworkers on how to be supportive. Wait, sorry, that was me dreaming. In reality, bereavement leave in most workplaces is woefully inadequate. Supervisors receive little to no training on how to support an employee, and coworkers, well, we're just as confused about what to say and do as ever. Most companies, if they have bereavement leave at all, offer three to five days when an immediate family member dies, one to three days for an extended family member's death, and a lot of them don't offer any leave at all if it's a friend, a pet, or even a partner when that relationship isn't considered legal through marriage. I know, most of you know, that five days is barely enough time to remember how to breathe, never mind attend meetings or write reports or care for a patient. Thankfully, there are people out there trying to change this. There's a movement here in the U.S. to formalize bereavement leave policies. Many companies are working to expand the number of days off they grant employees and to also broaden what types of losses count for those days. This is great. And there are also people like today's guest, Margot Folks, who are trying to help leaders and managers feel better equipped to support employees beyond those formal days off. Margo was a guest on Grief Out Loud back in November of 2020, talking about her son Jimmy, who was barely into his 20s when he died of cancer. Not long after that, her mother died. These losses motivated Margot to start Salt Water, an online community for people in grief. She soon started to hear from Saltwater folks about what it was like to go back to work with grief. These stories, combined with her professional experience as a consultant, inspired Margot's new book, Leading Through Loss, Navigating Grief at Work. She interviewed leaders across the country in the hopes of identifying why it's important for companies to support their employees who are grieving and which practices employees found to be hurtful and helpful. 
Margo, welcome back to Grief Out Loud. It's hard to believe it's been just a, like a little over two years since you were on the, the show last time. I know. Time really flies, doesn't it? I, I've been looking forward to, to having this conversation with you, Jana. And for listeners who maybe are newer to the show and didn't hear or don't remember our first conversation that we had back in November of 2020, can you talk a little bit about how you came to be in the grief world, both personally and professionally? Sure. Personally, I was I was thrown into the grief world when our son, our oldest child, Jimmy, died of brain cancer in 2014. And, you know, that's how I became a member of this club that, that no one ever wants to belong to. He had been diagnosed with brain cancer eight years before. So it had been a, a beautiful but long journey to that point. Um, in the year that followed, as I was just trying to navigate life in the aftermath, my mother's health declined and she passed away about a year after he did. And it was a very different experience to lose her because although she was 92, as you can imagine, having just lost my son, it was a devastating blow to lose her so soon after. And it was really my first lesson at the way other people try with all kindness to navigate loss and provide comfort because I got a lot of, oh, well, she was 92. She had a long, full life, and which I completely understand. And I have said that many times to people over the years. But what I found was because of the context and the situation, it wasn't a comfort to me. And so as I started thinking about what I wanted to do to kind of heal and channel some of my grief, I wound up creating a website and an online community called Saltwater. And I think had I not lost my mother, it would have been a site for people who, for parents who had lost children only. But because I had lost my mother, then I broadened it to anyone who'd, who'd lost someone dear to them. And at the same time, then when I launched Saltwater, I also relaunched my consulting practice. And at the time, they were very, very separate. So I was, I was writing and thinking about grief in the saltwater context, and then I was purely doing consulting work. But what happened was that over time, people in the saltwater world would start talking to me about their experiences going back to work and what it was like to be at work after they had had a loss. And I also found that, that the use of the terms like grief and loss were coming up more and more in the work environment. And that I was starting to identify things as grief or loss in ways that I had never done before I had lost Jimmy. It was just, it was interesting to identify them as that instead of using some of the other terminology I might have used in the past. Can you give an example of, of one of those circumstances that previously you wouldn't have ascribed the concepts of loss or grief to? The, the best example I can think of is in the context of layoffs. So I've done a lot of work over the years working with leadership teams and, and with teams of employees after a big layoff has happened. You know, how do you rebuild morale? How do you get people to recommit to work after they've lost some percentage of their teammates? And I've always talked about it using words like it's a blow. I might even have used the word loss, but I never thought as much about the grief that's involved with that. And I would not have probably used, in fact, I'm sure I didn't use that word. Whereas now I would use it more readily because there is so much grief involved. 
with with that kind of thing happening. The need to say goodbye to people, the way the company or the organization changes. Um, there, there's so much grief and loss involved with that. And it was something that I wouldn't have named like that 25 years ago. And in the in your newest book, Leading Through Loss, like how to navigate grief at work, you are writing really specifically about death loss in the work environment, which also encompasses non-death loss, but really specifically like employees who have had someone in their life die or have a, you know, advanced serious illness diagnosis, leaders who are dealing with the grief of a death in their lives, or a whole organization or a company that's dealing with a death of a employee or a member of their community. And, you know, at first glance, it seems pretty obvious that it's important for the work world to address grief when, when death occurs in their community. But I, I might just be super biased about that. So I'm wondering, like, in writing this book, or even what got you to the place of wanting to write this book, like, why is it important for employers to be grief aware and to have the skills and the capacity to navigate death loss when it comes, you know, through their doors or onto their Zoom screen? So in terms of the business, um, whether it's a nonprofit or a for-profit, there's a huge cost to ignoring grief or failing to support an employee or a team who's grieving. And it's why I started the book the way that I did, rather than jumping into what do you do when an employee is grieving or an employee has died, I started off by talking about first what grief looks like in the workplace, but then what is the cost of ignoring it? Because I think sometimes we are so uncomfortable and afraid of of talking to supporting someone who's grieving that there's this propensity to not bring it up and then if the employee doesn't bring it up it's kind of like we just we we avoid it we look the other way and it's like okay well they must be doing okay because they haven't said anything or they seem to be doing all right and the work is getting done but meanwhile there's a terrible cost to doing that Someone who's grieving, who doesn't get the support that they need, is far more likely to take additional time off than someone who's getting the support that they need. They're also more likely to really struggle with focus and concentration at work. And it's not that someone who's grieving won't struggle. They will also struggle. But that struggle will go on longer and and that person who is feeling alone and, and unacknowledged will we'll struggle more in that way. In, in environments where, say, they're handling heavy equipment or machinery or even, even doing you know, more fine motor kinds of like repair or things like that, th- there's much more likely to be accidents and mistakes getting made, um, as well as in you know, any kind of like spreadsheets and memos and things, anywhere you can have typos or the wrong numbers in there, all those kinds of things. Some amount of that will happen anyway, but there will be more when someone is not feeling supported and acknowledged. Um, The other piece of this, too, is that when you don't support an employee who's grieving, they are more likely to leave at some point because it's just too hard to be there if no one is bringing up this terrible loss that you've had and offering any sort of support or condolences. And I think oftentimes leaders know that, even as they they don't want that to happen, but they're kind of reluctant sometimes maybe to, to do what's necessary to support the person. But I think what gets underestimated is the impact on the rest of the employees. 
Because as this person is not getting supported, there's a whole group of people watching this dynamic and thinking to themselves, well, if it's me who loses my spouse, my parent, my sibling, this is how I'm going to get treated. This is what's going to happen to me. And if the grieving employee is a close friend and they're talking about how hard it is to be at work and to not have the support they need, that that other employee is even more likely to think, you know, I'm not sure this is a place that I want to work. I think it's easy to, you know, use the terms like the support that people need. Like I use it in my work all the time. And so what does that mean? (laughs) Like in terms of the, you did a lot of interviews for this book. And one of the things I really enjoyed in reading it is just connecting with people's personal stories of what it was like to carry their grief into their work. Um, So I imagine you learned a lot from them of like what worked and what didn't work. And so what's what were some of your biggest takeaways of like the the needs that employees have when they are trying to go back to work when a death has occurred? So what struck me the most and what I think was the spark for really writing the book in the first place was I expected people to tell me that their biggest need was more time off, because, as you know, in this country, probably we give on average three days of bereavement leave to a parent who has lost a child or a parent, which is which is nothing. I mean, it, you can't even plan a memorial service with that kind of time, much less actually begin processing your grief. So what I expected people to tell me was I needed two weeks, I needed a month, that kind of thing. And what was so interesting was that even those who got longer periods of time off were consistent with the ones who got less saying, sure, it was helpful to have more time, but eventually I had to go back to work. And that's where I think the real work of supporting someone begins. And so to answer your question, what that looks like is that means that even if you have acknowledged the loss when it happened and sent flowers, sent a card, had folks attend the memorial service, if that was appropriate, that when that employee comes back to work, there needs to be a conversation first before they come back about you know how they want to re-enter. Do they want people to bring up the loss and approach them? Would they rather not talk about it at work? You know, kind of getting a sense of what would be comforting and helpful to them. But if the employee says, yes, I would like people to say something to me, I'd like to talk about my child, my spouse at work then it means doing that, even if it's hard. Now, it doesn't mean doing it, again, all day long, but it means making space for those kinds of conversations and, and acknowledging it rather than forcing the employee to sit in a meeting or to be at work and have no one ever bring up this really momentous thing that has happened to them. Um, second, I think employees really need accommodations. And, and again, that's unique to each person. So for some people, it may be really difficult, for example, to talk on the phone. And so they might ask their boss, could I do more kind of back end things like writing the report, doing the spreadsheet, you know, putting together the proposal? And could someone maybe cover the phone calls with the clients or the customers for me for a while? So again, it's engaging in what they need and where they feel like they need some support. And it's also probably providing a bit of an additional, like a second set of eyes on what they do 
because we're all going to make mistakes when we're grieving. And it's good to just have someone take a quick look at the draft and say, ooh, there's a couple extra typos here, or this isn't quite right. So that that work doesn't go out done incorrectly, which then causes more trauma for this grieving employee who's probably doing their best to try to concentrate and do the same kind of work and just needs that little bit of extra support. And then thirdly, one of the things that I think is, is really helpful is to provide what I call in the book, a point person. And that can be the boss. That can be someone from HR. That can be a close friend in the organization who just checks in and says, you know, Jana, how are you today? You know, or are you, is there anything I can do to support you or to help you? And it gives you an opportunity to say, you know, today's hard or I'm doing okay. But, you know, the thing I'm really struggling with is that Joe keeps coming into my office and plopping down and wanting to talk to me about my loss. And I don't really want to talk about it either at work or with him. And then your point person can go have a very gentle conversation with Joe and say, you know, Janice really having a hard time right now. And I know you mean well by going in and checking with checking in with her, but it would actually be more helpful if maybe you could kind of refrain from doing that for a little while. And then it doesn't put the burden on you to have to manage something like that. In talking through, you know, I, I hear there's some level of like the top, top folks at an organization, there's things structurally they can put in place about time off and other some of those accommodations. And there's things that peer level folks can be doing to have an awareness of how to interact with the employee. But it seems like a lot of the responsibility for this is resting on like a direct supervisor, the person who's in charge of maybe the workload or the schedule or just checking in with someone. And did you have a sense from people that you talked to who were in that role of like, what do they need to feel like they have what the capacity and the skills to provide this type of support for their employees? I think the first piece of that is education, particularly if they've never had a devastating loss, because it's it's so intimidating and scary to know what to say or do when someone who works for you is grieving. I mean, we struggle with that just in our personal lives, right? Not knowing the best thing to say or do. So I think that's the first piece is just some training and education on how to support someone who's grieving. I think what's most important is just really understanding that every single person is different and that whether the loss itself is the same as another person's or completely different, that every one of us will grieve differently and will have different needs at work and those needs will change over time. So it's also really important to stay in touch with that grieving employee, something that's gotten more challenging during COVID and post-COVID because we're working from home, we're in Zoom meetings more, but that importance of just checking in frequently, particularly at the beginning, and then but continuing over time to make sure that that employee is getting the support and whatever they need to continue being productive at work. Um, I also think it's really important to get a bit of coaching for that manager about checking in with the other employees too, because they also are trying to support their colleague, but they're also probably picking up extra work. And so there's some conversation there around making sure that nobody's getting resentful, that there aren't other issues cropping up 
because of of this shift with this employee who's who's struggling because of this loss. And so I think it's really encouraging those managers to just have more conversations, which I think given the fact that we are working hybrid schedules or working from home more is just an all-round best practice right now because it's so easy to have something go sideways as a leader and not know because you're not all in the office together five days a week. The other thing that you talk about in your book that seems like a maybe more bigger picture organizational approach, maybe is the right word, is this idea of creating a compassionate culture in organizations and workplaces. And I mean, for me, I work at a nonprofit. So I'm like, yeah, that makes sense, compassionate culture. But then I think of my stereotype of like a big, I don't know, corporate situation, you know, like an airline or I don't know, computer company. This is how like not corporate I am. And I think, ooh, it just seems like compassion does not, that's not a word that's a part of the lexicon of the corporate world. And so I wonder what, uh, what did you discover in your interviews or in presenting this information to people of what does it mean to create a compassionate culture? So I think it's it's a lot of it is what we've already talked about, this idea of, of acknowledging loss instead of pretending that it's not happening so that you don't leave the employee sitting in meetings, you know, as one person put it, as though I were bleeding from my forehead and nobody was noticing it or acknowledging it in any way. I mean, I think the biggest thing that gets in the way sometimes of that is it's twofold. I think it's fear just on the human level of of you know, wading into what can feel like something pretty scary. But also what I've noticed sometimes in talking to folks about this is the place they go is to cost, right? Well, I can't give more time off. I can't let them take extra days. I can't. And so I think sometimes there's a a notion that compassionate culture means spending more money. And I think that's a myth. I mean, yeah, sure. If you can give more days off, great. I mean, that's that's a beautiful thing. And if you can allow someone to take time off to go to, you know, some counseling or a support group or just go home on an afternoon where it's just too hard to be at work, that's lovely. And sure, there's a cost to that. But most of the time, what what I talk about in the book it is not something that has an expense associated with it. But I think, again, because we do talk so much about bereavement leave in the context of grief in the workplace, I think sometimes that's a big barrier to creating a compassionate culture. And so it's helping you know leaders and organizations understand that it is worth wading into this, that you will not, in fact, make it worse by acknowledging this loss, and that it isn't about spending a lot of money. It's about time and attention and support that doesn't necessarily have much of a price tag to it. In that same realm, can you give an example or two of a time where you heard or saw like a company just really get it right? Not that there's anything right in grief, sorry, like responded in a a way that left the employee feeling very supported in their grief. Yes. And again, see, this is the thing that's so interesting, too, to go back to something you said about, you know, that it comes down to the boss. I think it's Gallup poll that talks about that we don't leave, we as employees do not leave organizations, we leave managers. And that's why it's that immediate superior that's so important to an employee who's grieving. So one beautiful example is Catherine Lemon Kearney, who works for a state government agency here in California. And when she went back to work after the death of her husband, who'd been ill for a very long time, her boss just said, listen, when you need to go home, 
go home and no questions asked, just leave. And when she expressed concern that she wasn't as productive as she normally was, her boss said, your half is better than most people's whole. Take as much time as you need. And Catherine said that she found that she, you know, she wasn't taking that much time, but the gift was in knowing that she could on a hard day. And then also getting like getting released to go to the support group on Fridays for 10 weeks right after her husband died. And that extra gift of her boss saying, don't come back to work, just go home afterwards. So it's, you know, it's that kind of thing. I think her boss did a beautiful job of supporting her. And one of the things she did, which was above and beyond and and really lovely, was she made a note of the date that Catherine's husband died. And as the date approached a year later, she went to Catherine and offered her the day off on that day. Yeah, what stands out to me from that example so much is getting in front of it not putting the onus on the employee to ask for what they need, although that is a very important practice, but to uh, like proactively, preemptively say, leave when you need to, and you don't have to ask me every single time. If you're not here, I'll know what happened. And go ahead and take this day off or take off that time after the support group rather than saying, well, just let me know what you need. And then the employee having to be like, is that valid? Is it okay to ask for that? Have to feel like they have to write a whole proposal for why they need that time off. That sounds amazing. If the people in my life were like preemptively saying, no, don't do that. Take this time or whatever it might be. Exactly. And in that vein, I think another one of my favorite stories is one from Andrea Corradini, who's a, a global vice president at Nike. And she writes about, she she spent eight months flying back and forth to Utah to take care of her mother who was dying of lung cancer. And a few days after her mother died, her team was going to Japan for a marketing trip. She called her boss and said, I need to go on this trip. I have to get out of here and be in a completely different environment. Is that okay? I could be a train wreck. And her boss responded by saying, get on the plane. And it's such a beautiful example of of trusting Andrea, but also making it okay that if she got there and realized, oh, yeah, this turned out to not be a good decision, then there was space for her to say, yeah, this was actually a mistake, but I didn't know it would be until I got here. And, And she went on to say it turned out to be exactly what she needed. She was in another country. She was doing a big marketing event. She was with her team. She needed the distraction after all those months and then her mother's death. But the beauty of her boss just trusting her in that way to know what she, so it's almost like the flip side of Catherine's example, right? Where Andrea asked for what she needed and her her boss trusted her to know. Well, and that brings up another realm of this. I think a lot of times when I think about like, what do people who are grieving need in work and maybe also what bosses start thinking people who are grieving at work need, which is like less work, less time at work. But there's also the other side of that, that there are a lot of people in their grief who turn to their work as part of their support. And do you have an example or two? I mean, I know that was a great example of flying off to Japan, but I just wonder if you ran into that as well and other people that you talk to. I did. I did. Um, Sherry Raisler, who runs the Society for the Blind, talks about that as well. Her only sibling, her brother, died very unexpectedly. And she flew home to Wisconsin, where she's from, for a week. And when she got back to Sacramento, she realized she did not want to be home. And her her board of directors, who she reported to, said, you know, take all the time you need. And she said, I need to be at work. 
But one of the things that she did that I think is, is so fantastic is she went to her leadership team and she said, look, I need to be at work and I'm going to do my best to be productive. But I'm telling you right now, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to forget things. I, you're going to say to me, I need you to get this done by Tuesday and Tuesday is going to come and it won't be done. And so I give you permission to come to me and say, um, Sherry, remember how you promised that you would have that, that report done? I, I really need you to finish it. Um, she also said, there are times when I may be cranky or I may say something, you know, I may snap or whatever, and just know that that's just part of my grief. And so it makes space for, for her to be human too in that context. Um, and, and she's certainly not the only one who went back right afterwards. It, it's an interesting blend of people who, who felt like they needed a little time off, a lot time off, or really virtually no time off and just wanted to be back at work. So we focused most of our conversation so far on individual employees who have experienced a death and like, how do we do work after that? Uh, but then the other aspect of your book is really about what do organizations and corporations do when one of their people, one of their community members, one of their staff members dies and how that impacts a whole team or a whole organization. Could you talk a bit about like, what are some of the first steps that an employer should be thinking about when someone in their realm dies? So I think the first step is to reach out to the family. There's for multiple reasons. First, to just simply offer condolences, right, on behalf of the team or the whole organization, and to ask if there's anything that that they can do to help. You know, does the family need meals? Are there is there a fund for the funeral? Is is there a college fund for the kids that that they might donate to? It's also an appropriate time to ask if whether it's just members of the team or the whole organization, whatever is appropriate, can people come to the memorial service if there's going to be one and, and pay their respects? So that's the first thing. Then, then the next thing to ask is, what would you like us to tell the other people at the organization so that you make sure as that leader that you are sharing only what the family wants shared and so it's important that the employer know that so that they are only sharing what the family wants shared. Then once the, the leader who's made that phone call has that information, it's important to then share it with first the employee's team and then the rest of the organization. Because the last thing you want is for this to be kind of shared in the parking lot and around the water cooler, as they say, you want everyone to be informed about the loss. Even if you can't share any of the circumstances, people need to know that this employee has died. If it's appropriate to attend a memorial service, if there's, you know, a donation being set up, or even if the family has said, you know, in lieu of flowers, we would like donations here you can invite people to, to donate to that. You can also encourage them to send a card to the family. Because I will tell you as someone who you know received cards after my son died, some of the most beautiful ones are the ones that, that say something really specific from people who knew Jimmy and who might have a memory or a story that I didn't know or would love to be reminded of. And that's really true with our work connections because I might know you really well, but I don't know anything about, about how you are at work. And so as a family member, it's really lovely to get a card saying how much, you know, I enjoyed working with this person and here's why. 
So those are really the first, you know, the first steps. And then also the other thing I would add is making some space for people at work to talk about what's happened. So uh, whether it's a kind of an informal coming together or a more formal, you know, organized kind of gathering, you have to make space for people to talk about the loss because otherwise it will bleed out into other spaces and it will become this distraction and this thing that people do off to the side. They have to have those conversations and it's far better to to allow them and enable them to have those conversations than to force them to have them at odd moments. I know it's always a tricky thing because, you know, in my role, I sometimes offer guidance or support to organizations when someone has died. And it's it's very tricky to find the right time. You know that there are some folks who, you know, we might offer a time to come together and share memories and maybe light a candle in honor of their person or ask questions. And, you know, some people show up and a lot of people are like, no, thank you. I do not want to sit in a room with my colleagues and talk about this potentially emotional situation. So I think the same guidance, right, that we share about how each individual is different and individual in their grief, same thing holds true when an employee dies, that all of those employees are going to have very different ways of reacting and things that they need. But the opportunity is so helpful to have. Yes, exactly. It's, it's, it's a blow. I mean, by, I think by definition, if someone dies who in, you know, not necessarily in the workplace, but someone, you know, that we're working with dies, it, it is by definition an out of order death because it means they're younger. They're too young to, to have died. And so I think there's a lot of fear and upset that goes along with just the sadness of this person being gone. And a good reminder too that, you know, when say someone in the, in the corporation dies, the immediate thought might be to their closest coworkers, their team members, like the people who worked with them on a day-to-day basis. But there may be people in the organization who barely knew that person, but have their own personal experience with loss, either past loss or forecasting into the future, and maybe having a really strong emotional reaction that wouldn't necessarily be on their supervisor's radar. So like, you know, you guys are in totally different departments. You hardly ever met like what is going on. But to remember that, you know, loss touches all of us in a way that it, it maps into our own, um, you know, personal highway of experience with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also even, you know, in a larger organization, someone that we might only see in a very limited way, like it might just be the person that we run into in the hallway and literally have never worked with. But we have that quick chat once a week you know, about really nothing as we run into each other, or we often see each other in the cafeteria, if there is one or whatever, that that we get into these little rituals and routines with folks that we work with, that we don't think about at the time, because they're not the people, like you said, that we work with all the time. But when something happens, and they're gone, we miss them. And and again, there's that that need to kind of process and it may bring up all kinds of other feelings. The other part in your book that really stood out, and this is, again, my own bias because I work in the realm of peer support, but there seem to be quite a few examples you came across of this very informal peer support happening in the work environment where the employee that had someone who died connects with another employee who also had someone in their life die and that that connection made it easier to be there. And I wonder if you could you know, share a little bit of one or two uh, examples of that. Sure, I'll share two that, that leap out at me. One is the example that Linda Knight Crane gives where she talks about being in her office at Six Flags and and she's crying because her her son has died. And 
one of her colleagues comes in and says, I can hear you when you're in your office and you're crying and I don't know what to do. I, I, I don't know whether to come in and, and try to comfort you. I don't know whether to ignore it, but I want to be supportive. And it doesn't feel right to me to just kind of sit here and, and, and hear you crying and not do anything. And Linda said, you know what? You can just let me cry because I'm going to do it a lot. And so, but I really appreciate you, you saying that to me. And that stayed with her, even though she said no, thank you to the person coming in. It was just the, the fact that she was brave enough to say something was really, really important. The other example that I love in the book is from Tim Moy, um, who works for Delta Airlines. He talked about after his son died, he went back to work and he at the time was a mechanic. And he said, you know, there was no one to talk to about this. Here I am. I'm this guy in this sort of guy's world and no one wants to talk about this. And I don't know who to talk to about it. And about a year into after his son died, someone introduced him to another mechanic whose son had also just passed away. And the two of them met outside of one of the hangars, just connected with each other. And he and he describes this meeting as he said, here you have these two men. We are sobbing and hugging our, each other as we talk about our children, our boys who are young men who've died. And he said, out of the corner of my eye, I can see all these other people we work with just walking past us like with their heads <laughs> and looking in the other direction. Like, I don't even want to see this. This is so uncomfortable. But it was so comforting to him to talk to someone else, another father who had been through it, that it inspired him to start what is called Wrenched Hearts, which is a support group at Delta Airlines that's now corporate sponsored for anyone in Delta Airlines who has lost someone. And it was born out of that one meeting from this other mechanic who's provided such incredible support because he too had lost a child. And I, it, there, I think, I mean, you, I'm telling you, like, you don't know that, but it, there's such incredible comfort for talking to somebody else who's had, it doesn't even have to be the same loss, but who has also had a devastating loss and who understands just how painful and out of control you feel, particularly in those early days. And I think too about the how important it can be even I mean, these folks had conversations, but even if you never have like an in depth conversation with the other person in your company who has also had a death, sometimes just knowing that person is there. You know, I think back to the folks who were offered more time off or could leave whenever they needed to, and they found themselves not really leaving, but just knowing they could, like the insurance policy, and just like being in a meeting and somebody says something that's just going to hit you in a certain way because of where you are in your grief, and just knowing there's one other person out there who's probably having a similar reaction, even if we never talk about it, can feel relieving in a, in a really big way. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And and there is real power in, you know, if, if the company's so inclined you know, or the organization, that ability to connect with some of those other folks who, who might also be grieving some sort of loss too. So Margo, in writing this book, I mean, here you are, you're like a consultant, right? You got your business hat on, but you're also a mom who's had a son die and a daughter who's had a mother die. And wondering in writing this book and talking to these folks, what did you learn maybe in looking back on your own experience in your family of you and your husband going back to work and your daughter going back to school? Like, was there any sort of, I don't know, reflection revelation for you in writing this book? 
such an interesting question. We were, we were, my husband and I were somewhat unique data points in that Dan had taken a leave of absence um, during the final months of Jimmy's life. And I had, and I had put my consulting practice on hold because he was home full time and, and we were caring for him. And so we were both able to take more time off than, than many people can. It was interesting to go back to work. I can't speak for him, but I know for me, when I started consulting again, I felt literally rusty. It was, I I almost wasn't sure that I would be able to do it because my brain didn't feel like it would work correctly. And I didn't know if I would have the memory or the focus like to deliver a talk to a client or to facilitate a session. And it was so interesting to me that, that having that additional time off, while it was helpful in some ways from healing the rawest part of my grief, it took being back in that environment to kind of get me back in that rhythm and allow those skills to come back out. That, that the only way basically to, to start delivering talks, facilitating meetings was to start delivering talks and facilitating meetings. That, that the time off from work didn't actually help with any of that. It was, it was being back in that environment. And I don't know how much people notice, but like stumbling, forgetting my wor- a word, you know, saying something the wrong way and just kind of working it out as I went along. Um, And the other thing that really strikes me is that I think of our daughter who was a junior in college and in the process of, she had been recruited to play softball for a division one college, but had to still apply and be admitted. And of course, junior year in high school, for anybody who's got kids in high school, they know that's a really important year for college, for grades and all that kind of thing. She really put her grief in some ways on hold as she navigated the rest of high school and even the first part of college. It it wasn't until she was away the summer after freshman year that she really got a chance to just sit with her grief on an overseas experience that she had with a small group of students. It was really it it was an interesting it was interesting to me to watch that because it reinforced the idea that you cannot not deal with the grief, that it will wait for you, even if you don't deal with it in the moment. But it also was a reminder too of that, of that real power of, of sitting in the middle of it and just letting yourself grieve. Because I realized in looking at what, at what she was doing, that that's what I did when my mom died, was I had this year where I was, I was overseeing her trust and, and handling everything where I spent a lot of time going through her papers and her belongings, just crying for her, for Jimmy. And I didn't think about it at the time. It's just what I was doing. It's what I had to do was to take care of it, but that it really as scary and as hard as it is, that it was so helpful to do that. And it isn't something, you know, you can't sit and do that for hours on end at work for sure, but it's, it's important to make sure that when you're not at work in this context, to make time to do that, that emotion has to come out, that work has to get done in order to at least begin kind of navigating your way through. It's interesting that, you know, between you and your daughter, you kind of put your thing on pause while you're taking care of Jimmy, and then you had to go back to your thing and felt kind of rusty about it. And she delved very deeply into the thing so she could do what she needed to do. And then the grief showed up in a different way 
uh, after she had accomplished the things she needed to do in that in that moment. And again, that there's no right or wrong way to do that. You know, sometimes people think like, oh, if only I had sat with the grief sooner, I wouldn't feel it the way I feel it now. And I'm always like, well, I don't, I don't know if it balances out quite that way. <laughs> like if I just really do it all, it's like if I just do all the dishes on Monday, there'll be no dishes the rest of the week. And suddenly there's still dishes on Saturday. So you can pace it out sometimes and that's okay too. Exactly, exactly. I think, I think as humans, you know, we want, we just want the rule book, right? We want to know here's step A. That That's why that whole five stages thing, which, you know, people have tried to apply to grief. It, it, it doesn't work, but I think there's a reason that we try to apply it is because we want to know like what's going to happen. What am I supposed to do? How's this going to work? And it, there is no space more scary than work to think about navigating something that really doesn't have rules and that you might not even know what it's going to, you won't know what it's going to be like for you until you're in the middle of it. So as we come to the end of our conversation, you know, I'm going to tell people about where to find your book and also how to connect with you uh, at Saltwater. So do you want to give people just a little bit of heads up of where to go? And I will put it in the show notes as well for people. Absolutely. So Saltwater's website is findyourharbor.com. And that is, so that's the best place to find my work around grief and loss. And for those that are interested in the book, you can go to ontargetconsulting.net. And there's a page on the, on that website for the book and the work that I do around, around grief in the workplace. Great. And are you someone that if a company wants to get more support on how to learn how to do this, would they reach out to you directly? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, that makes me feel good because I'm always looking for referrals for people who <laughs> want to learn how to do this. So thank you again, Margo, for your book, for the work that you do to support people who are grieving through salt water and for your time today and just for the connection that you've made with us at Grief Out Loud. I'm really grateful for you. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm grateful for you too. And it's, it's always such a joy to talk to you. And listeners out there, I say it each and every time, thank you for being part of our community, for making the show mean something to someone somewhere. So I appreciate the times that you send an episode to a friend or a family member, or perhaps to an employer after this episode. And for the times that you reach out directly to me and send me an email, let me know what the show means to you. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org, which is D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G also where you can head to our website, same place, dougy.org, to find out more about our local um, peer grief support program, our free downloadable resources, our national directory, and all of the past episodes of Grief Out Loud. And I'm always excited to share with you that Grief Out Loud is sponsored in part by the Chester Stefan Endowment Fund. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>